All right, good morning, everybody. We're gonna, we're gonna go ahead and get started here. Um, looks like we got a couple of new faces here, so what I wanna do is, I do wanna take a couple of minutes just to give a little bit of context of, of, of what we're doing, right? Um, so, <clears throat> you know, typically in Sunday school in, uh, at, at Trinity, we, we tend to go through, you know, books of the Bible, and Stuart, I think, does a great job in, in doing that. Um, I think he does most of the, the heavy lifting when it comes to Sunday school. Um, but what we did, I guess, starting um, mid-last year, is we started this uh, systematic theology class. Uh, systematic theology being, you know, the study of God, and there's different ways that you can, you can study God and his relationship with us. Um, the way that we're doing it primarily is through what's called systematic theology, which is uh, breaking theology in, into, into topics. So we started with... Uh, the, the theology of the Bible, and then the, uh, or the doctrines of the Bible, I should say, and then the, the, the doctrines concerning um, God himself and, and Christ. And right now we're in the, um, pardon me, in the part that, um, the topic of, of talking about salvation, which is called soteriology. And so what we um, decided to do is since we are in kind of the reformed portion of, of Protestantism, is look at one of the, the confessions or one of the, the, the historical documents going back about, what, 400 years or so. And um, I think it was written 1619, um, yeah, about 1619. And so it's, uh, it's called the Canons of Dort. And the Canons of Dort were, um, it was a document that was written by a synod of churches that were all pulled together um, and they were what they were doing is responding to the teaching of uh, a man named Jacob Arminius, and it was actually not long after his death where his followers had written um, a document called the Remonstrance, which means protest, and they were essentially protesting against the the, the teaching of the the Reformed Church, the specifically the Dutch Reformed Church, and. Um, it's the, the Belgic Confession is uh, where that, that, um, that, I guess, denominations, um, doctrines are encapsulated. It's, where, it's the confession that they, that they adhere to, right? So we've been going through the Canons of Dort. Um, there are four um, um, basic articles. There's Article 1, Article 2, and then 3 and 4 are combined together in response to the Remonstrance. And then there's... Um, the, the fourth article respond, responds to the, the fifth article of the, of the Remonstrance, okay? And so we've covered um, parts one and two. Today we're going to hit part three. And so this gets, um, turns from election um, and the work of Christ. Now we begin to talk about um, regeneration itself. And I'm sorry, I had a... Actually, I don't think I did. I think I was so caught up in the uh, microphone that I forgot to get the uh, forgot to get the clicker. Thank you, sir. All right. So this is some you know basic uh, you know points concerning the the canons of Dort. We've gone through um, gone through these uh, you know a couple of different times. These are the uh, the major sections um, responding to the five points um, of the the Remonstrance. And then um, today we're going to get into, um, we're in that third part, points three, three and four, all right? So let's pray, and then we will get started. Father, thank you 
once again for this morning, um, as we do every week, we thank you for uh, just the opportunity to come together uh, to worship you uh, this morning. And um, during this hour, um, just to, to, to have a conversation um, about you, about the salvation that you have provided to us. And uh, Father, we ask that uh, you be glorified um, as we go through this hour and we go through this day. And um, we love you, we trust you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Article 1. Um, so, like we said, the, um, the remonstrance was a, a fairly short document, and it, it, again, it just had five points, and it was almost like five paragraphs. And then the, uh, the canons of Dort, which are the response to that, is a sizable document. Um, and that one paragraph that, or I'm sorry, the two paragraphs that the remonstrance wrote, it was their third and fourth points, um, the canons are re, um, responding to with 17, um, 17 articles. And so we're not going to go through them in quite the detail that we have the first two sections because we kind of need to get moving a little bit. Um, and so what we'll do is a, a handful of them, we'll go ahead and, and read the whole text and then we'll break it apart like we've done before. Um, but so, several of you know, we're going to skip a few and then we're also going to just kind of summarize a handful as well. And one more thing before we really get going, um, I'll be out the next two weeks. Um, so Ken is going to fill in for me. Um, next week, he's going to go through a biblical theology of, of atonement. And so what that means is he's going to take the concept of atonement and walk us through the Old Testament, um, through to the, the New Testament. Um, I love that sort of thing. It's a, um, you know, biblical theology is something that greatly informs the way that we do systematic theology, which is what we're doing here. And then the second week, I actually, uh, you know, so two weeks from today, I actually just sprung that on him. Um, I think it was yesterday. I said, hey, can you cover me two weeks in a row? I could really kind of use a, a break. And uh, so we don't know what he's going to teach quite yet. I'm kind of leaning, you've heard of Pelagianism, I'm kind of leaning toward, you know, seeing if he wants to uh, teach that, but he may have something else in mind. So. So if you have any thoughts, something related to soteriology that you would like Ken to cover in two weeks, let me, let me know. All right, so Article 1, the effect of the fall on human nature. Now we're actually, we're going to go through a couple of these pretty, pretty quickly because we covered uh, sin and the fall, um, I don't know, a month or two ago, um, and we spent you know, a few weeks on it. So this is, is kind of, should be familiar territory um, with us. So, uh, and by the way, if you see it written in blue, um, then that's a quote from um, uh, from the canons. And if you see gray, then that's that's my notes and stuff. So, all right. Human beings were originally created in the image of God, and were furnished in mind with a true and sound knowledge of the Creator and things spiritual, in will and heart with righteousness, and in all emotions with purity. Indeed, the whole human. Being what, uh, the whole human being was holy. However, rebelling against God at the devil's uh, instigation, and by their own free will, they deprived themselves of these outstanding gifts. Rather, in their place, they brought upon themselves blindness, terrible darkness, futility, and distortion of judgment in their minds, perversity, defiance, and hardness in their hearts and wills, and finally, impurity in all their emotions. That's a kind of a handful there, or a mouthful, I should say. 
So what, um, when it talks about um, Adam and Eve, clearly that's who they're talking about, or uh, yeah, who they're talking about here, what does holy mean? In that context, what does holy mean? What's that? Exactly. It means set apart. Um, in, um, I think it's Latin, it would be sanctified, right? Holy, it's set, set apart. And um, you want to add anything to that about Adam and Eve being set apart? Okay. Different than the rest of all creation? Go ahead. Made in God's image. Good. Yeah, that's, what, that's all fantastic. And so the idea there is when something is holy, uh, something is sanctified, it is set apart um, for this, the service of God. Um, I think of, um, if you look at your Bible, you know, uh, if you have a paper Bible and you're, you're flipping through a, you know, a paper Bible, that paper is just paper. But that pa- paper was sanctified, it was made holy when we printed God's Word on it, and it was set apart for the service of God, right? So you can have something that is common that can be made holy if it is set apart by God, or uh, for, for the service of God. Does that make sense? Okay. And so in this case, from the very beginning, Adam and Eve were set apart for the service of God. They were um, created in his image, and they were, what was their, their fundamental command? Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, bring that image of God, the reflection of God's glory, through to the whole world. Okay. All right, so we have this idea of, and then it says, however, rebelling against God at the devil's instigation. The question, did the devil make them do it? No. No? What did the devil do? Tempted them, right? So what's the difference? What's the difference between temptation and making somebody do something? Well, the next phrase says, by their own free will. Good, by their own free will. So ultimately, who is accountable? They're responsible for it, so we're responsible for it. Now, the reason I I threw this in there is more modern-day application than it is going back and looking at the canons. It's the idea that Satan gets blamed for a lot of stuff that he has nothing to do with. When you walk out of here today, when I walk out of here today, we're going to have thoughts going through our minds. We're going to have rebellious thoughts, impure thoughts, things of that nature, and that is not on Satan. That is not on the devil. That is on us. Okay, we, um, I can't even tell you how many people that I've talked to that have talked about their sin, and it's almost like they're blaming their sin on Satan. We're, Satan's not responsible for our sin. We're responsible for our sin. Okay? Um, we're not responsible for how we're tempted. We're responsible for succumbing to that temp- temptation. And in a broader context, um, we're not responsible for for what happens to us, we're responsible for how we respond, right? So, for example, um, you know, I'm going to be snarky with Danny. I guess I'll go ahead and be snarky with Danny. I can do something mean to Danny, okay, that, you know, maybe he didn't, didn't ask for. Um, I can tease him about a, a lame deadlift or bench press or something, right? But um, he, he's not responsible for me doing that to him but he is responsible for the way that he responds because regardless of how I treat him, he needs to respond to me in what? Love, okay? Gentleness, that sort of thing. And so when we respond to people 
who instigate or antagonize us when we respond in love, what are we doing? We're glorifying God. We're demonstrating God's love to, to the world. When we love one another, we're demonstrating God's love to the world. Right. Yes, sir. Good morning. 132? Okay. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only beat them, but give approval to those who practice them. Yes. I don't think they get the pat on the back for encouraging people to practice. I agree. Did, what did I say to make you thought that... Yeah, I, I agree with okay. what you're saying, I'm, but I never said that... Um, I just wanted to resolve something. Okay. Um, likewise, who causes any one of these to fall? Right. Better for him. Right. Stone with hunger and I don't think the Bible gives an entire task. Ah, gotcha. You're right. You're right. So let, I'm glad you said that. Let me clarify. So if I, um, if I antagonize, did everybody hear that? Um, the Bible doesn't give a pass to people who antagonize others. And you're absolutely right. So let me clarify. So if I antagonize Danny and I'm trying to tempt him or make him stumble or just be mean to him or whatever, um, let's stop at that point. I'm in sin. He's not. Okay, so my point was is is if Danny is antagonized by somebody, um, he's not responsible for that antagonism. He's responsible for how he responds. Does that make sense? So, so if I antagonize him, I if I'm, if I'm even trying to make him sin, um, or if I'm approaching him in an unloving way, then I'm in sin. Okay, and he's not. Is that is that cool? Okay, good. I'm glad you asked that. Um, good, good point. Uh, and then we talked about tulip, um, which is uh, the way that a lot of folks um, these days talk about um, or refer to kind of the, the points of uh, the Canons of Dort. Um, and this, you know, it's a little acronym. It stands for total depravity, um, unconditional election, limited atonement, um, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Um, and so this idea here of this uh, blindness, terrible darkness, futility, distortion. It's, it's covering uh, every aspect of the human being, right? So um, it's saying every aspect of the human being has become sinful. So which of the letters of the tulip would, would that apply to? Depravity. T, right? It's the total depravity. And that's what total depravity actually means. A lot of folks, I think, think that um, total depravity, depravity means that we are totally sinful, um, as sinful as we can be. Um, but that's actually not true. What, what total depravity is, is talking about, well, actually, let me refer, that may be true, but that's not what total depravity is saying. What total depravity is saying is the totality of mankind. In, in other words, your emotions, your intellect, your will, um, every aspect of who you are, your, even your body is, is depraved in, in sin. Okay? All right. Can you hear my shoes? Oh my goodness. I, I will not wear them again. I, they're, they're new shoes and they are squeaking. It sounds like an old pirate ship creaking or something. It's kind of driving me crazy. All right. Um, I'll, I'll try to stand still. Um, yeah, good luck with that, right? Um, so article two, the spread of corruption. Um, so 
again, we're paraphrasing here, the corruption spread uh, from Adam and Eve to all their descendants, except for Christ, and that, and that emphasis is on all, all their descendants, um, except for Christ, not by way of imitation, but by way of propagation of their perverted nature. Now, the idea here is, is that there was a, um, a teacher in, four, I think, the 4th century, 4th or 5th century, 4th century, 4th or 5th century, what? fifth century, um, uh, named Pelagius. And he taught, among other things, that our sinful behavior was a result of imitating like our parents and other people and that sort of thing. In other words, sinful behavior was learned. Okay? In reality, no, sinful behavior is not learned. It's, it's a part of, of who we are. It's a part of, kind of, part of our being. Um, so it's important to understand that we have we have a sinful nature. Um, it's not just a matter of choices that we make. It's our nature is, is corrupt as well. All right. Article 3, total inability. Uh, again, paraphrase. Uh, Therefore, all people are under wrath, not possessing any saving good, inclined to evil, uh, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves to such reform. All right. So, this is why regeneration must precede faith, because we don't have... Yeah, right. So, because we don't have the, the ability to... It, our, our, our wills, our, every aspect of our mind... Um, is, is corrupted, and so we don't have, actually have the ability to, to trust God. And that's what faith is, is trusting God. So, question for you is, and this is one of those where, I don't know, we might have an interesting conversation, or maybe three seconds, I may have it, have it with myself, I don't know. Is it, is it that we're not free to choose God, or is it that we are incapable of choosing God? So to put it another way, are we free to choose God? Yes. Okay. Good. But are we capable of choosing God? No. So in that way, you guys just nailed it right out of the gate. Um, so yeah, we're free to choose God. As Norman Geisler would say, um, he, he actually Norman Geisler, who we're going to talk about in a minute, he actually wrote a book called Free to Choose. Now, I hate the book. I, I don't like what he, what he writes there. It's a, from an Arminian perspective. Um, but the title of it is correct. We are free to choose. And um, a lot of, again, I hate to keep saying a lot of folks, but a lot of folks think, um, you know, kind of believe that, um, the, um, that what we're teaching is that we don't have the freedom to choose God, right? But we, we do have the freedom to choose God. We just don't have the ability. And kind of an analogy, um, I can... I can you know, like let's take myself for example. Do I have the freedom to uh, walk out, to walk down the aisle and walk out that door? Do I have the freedom to do that? Yes, yes, yes I do. It's not a trick question, okay? Do I have the ability to do that? Yes, yes I do. Do I have the freedom to float up in the air and flap my arms and float out the door? I have the freedom to do that, don't I? There's, you know, um, there's nobody going that's going to, uh, nobody's 
dictating me that I can't make that decision. However, do I have the ability to do that? If, if I'm not a superhero, then no, I don't have the ability to do that, right? Um, or some kind of weird force projection or something, but we're not going there. Um, so anyway, so, uh, so physically, I have the freedom to, and the ability to walk out the door, but I, and I have the freedom but not the ability to float out the door. One, one more example of that, then I'll, I'll get to you. Another example would be, do I have the freedom to um, solve the mathematical problem, um, what's the square root of nine? Yes, it's three, okay? Do I have the ability? Well, obviously, because I just did it. Now, I can take a um, huge 27-digit number. Do I have the freedom to, to solve the, the cube root of that number? Yes, I do. Do I have the ability? Well, no. No, I don't. And so you can take that in, the, um, take that in different areas of our lives, and the way we apply it to our, the, spiritual, in the, our, the spiritual aspects of our life which would be our um, faith in God. We have the freedom to choose God, but we don't have the ability to choose God. Yes, ma'am. You've got a look in your eye. <laughs> um, so you, you talked with your floating thing as if uh -huh. nobody has dictated that you cannot. But is it not true that God has chosen some salvation and chosen the others to damnation? So if that's the case, has God not dictated you don't have the freedom? Okay, that's a good question. Um, so uh, that is one of those questions. So what, and what she said was, um, has not God chosen certain people to, um, uh, to salvation and others to damnation? Okay, but we'll stop right there. So the... That, is, that statement is actually a, a contentious statement even within um, re, like reform circles, right? The first part of it, folks, um, every, I think everyone in the reformed world agrees with, right? Well, obviously everyone in the, in the reformed world agrees with. God has elected certain people to, to salvation. Now, in terms of electing them to damnation, that's something where there's a divide because that's called um, double rep reprobation or um, double predestination. And it's the idea that, um, and we're actually going to get to that a little bit later, and what the canons would say is that God did not, um, God, God did not elect them to damnation. They, um, damnation is of their own choosing, right? So it's, it's, it's a, it's a, I, I struggle with the contention because I can kind of see both sides of it, and so I don't I don't teach it real um, real strictly. I try to have a, a little bit of humility in it um, because I think what the idea is is um, is essentially you know God God is not we talk about human responsibility. God is not responsible for people's unbelief. He's only responsible for people's belief. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. Stephen, can you clean that up at all? Okay, cool. <laughs> so, um, and so in that sense, um, and again, when we, when we talk about, um, 
when we're in this world of talking about human responsibility and, and divine sovereignty, um, you know, the, the, way I, the way I think about it is kind of the way that I think about when we talk about Christ, right? Because Christ is fully divine, Christ is fully human. And when you understand, and then another way, another one would be Trinity. God is three, God is one, right? So you can take kind of either one of those and what, with what I'm about to say. We can look at the divinity of, of Christ and we can, um, I'll say, examine it, we can appreciate it, we can study it. Um, and it, it's, it's sort of like, um, two, like two mountain peaks, okay? So you're, you're, you're in the details of one and you're looking at it. The other one is kind of far away, right? So if you're, if you're studying, if you're worshiping Christ in his, his divinity, um, then his humanity is something that is kind of blurry, right? And then when you begin to focus on his humanity, then his divinity starts to get a little bit blurry. We can't really hold both of them in, um, in view at the same time. So it's almost like we have two different conversations about his divinity and his, um, and his humanity, understanding that we are talking about one person. Similarly, um, with human responsibility and divine sovereignty, we have conversations around human responsibility. We have conversations around divine sovereignty. And it's when we're talking about one, kind of the other is blurry. Does that make sense? Because they're both, like we talked about last week, they're both, um, they're both true. They're both, and they're, there's a tension there in our minds. And that's the reason I talked about the incomprehensibility of God last, last week. We cool with that? Okay, we can talk later. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. I was just going to add on the, the whole double predestination thing. I think the way that the question is asked is that if God elects some to salvation and, and some to damnation, it implies some sort of middle ground of like neutrality yeah. okay. that doesn't actually exist. All right. of humanity is either damned right. or not. Right, right. It's a binary. And right. the, the Reformed position is everyone is damned right. apart from Christ. It's not as if you're in the middle and he sets some up and some down. It's everybody's down okay. and he pulled some up. Okay. Which helps to resolve at least a little. It's just kind of a faulty way of thinking, I think. Right, right. It's not stated outright, but that's kind of what you're implying when you're saying God elects some to damnation right. and some to salvation. It suggests that there was a place in the middle where they weren't elected either way before that. Right. And that's just not the case. Okay, good. I, I'm not going to repeat that. Um, <laughs> but that was, that was good. I appreciate that, Stephen. All right. Iffy, what do you got? No. You need to stop apologizing. You have good questions. So don't apologize for apologizing. But go ahead. Okay. I'll run this straight. Every time God speaks of himself as owner that I can think of, correct mm-hmm. me, but he never really gives us that middle ground. But I just, I see it more the way right. the question was. Yeah. Like, the context is Second Timothy 2. Election versus honor and something. Right, right. Now, unless you're saying he's speaking of the church and mm-hmm. some right. or not, does that, um, where he says, I can pick this one, mm-hmm. you know, I can love Jacob and right. Esau. Right. Likewise, you know, when he says, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, mm-hmm. he's right. either hardening Pharaoh's heart or he's speaking in right. some form of metaphor that right. is not explained later. Right. Um, 
I, I hear you, and, that, and that's why last week, why we talked so much. It's like um, we went 10 minutes late, and we were actually talking about this very thing. And, and that's the reason, is because, for, first of all, you mentioned Pharaoh. If you go back and read, um, I can't remember if it's five or six times, but either five or six times, he says that um, he, he hardened Pharaoh, that I will harden Pharaoh's heart. The same exact number of times he says that Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay, and so what we have to do is is go in and we have to appreciate what the Bible is teaching, in that it's 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 not teaching a blend, it's not teaching, and it's not teaching an either or. It's teaching a both and. Okay, and that's what the canons are teaching as well, and it gets into it like I think in articles article sixteen or seventeen, right? And, it, and that's the um, kind of the, the idea there is, I was trying to figure out a way to, to, to kind of explain this. What we tend to do is think of the world in a dichotomy, right? And so that's either this or it's this. And so this is um, divine sovereignty. And if we have divine sovereignty, then ultimately humans are not responsible for their own actions, right? And over here, we have human free, we'll call it human freedom, because that tends to be the way they think about it. Human freedom, and if we have human freedom, then God is not sovereign, okay? And so, those seem to be the two buckets that we think about. Either It's either over here, or it's over here. That's not the biblical, um, it's not, one, it's not Reformed theology, it's not Orthodox theology, it's, it's, um, and it's not biblical it's, it's this and this. And, and so what people have tried to do in history, including Pelagius and um, our, our Jacob Arminius, is come up with like a third bucket where there's something in between, where it's, it's, okay, it's part this and it's part this. Well, no, that's not it either. Again, that's the reason I keep going back to Christology. That's the reason I keep going back to Jesus is fully divine, Jesus is fully human. And it's not, he's a blend. He's not Hercules. It's not like he's 50-50, right? He's, he's fully human and he's fully divine. And what we have here, and, and again, biblically, we have God is, divine, is, is sovereign. Obviously, he's divine. Um, God is sovereign and humans are responsible, okay? And there's, there's no human mind can reconcile that. And that, again, that's why I led off the conversation last week talking about the incomprehensibility of God. God could have set this world up in any way that he wanted to, right? And, but what he chose to do is he, he chose to do it in such a way that we have, um, there's a, a I'll, I'll call it a tension between divine sovereignty and, and human responsibility. And again, go back to looking at Jesus when he's, um, teaching with Nicodemus, and as you go through his teaching, in, in one sentence, he'll talk about God draws people, and nobody comes to, to God um, except those who, um, who the Father has chosen, right, or the, that the Father has elected. But then he'll go and he'll say, oh, Jerusalem, you've, you've crucified, you know, you've killed the prophets, and I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but why? Why didn't he do it? What's it say? 
you are not willing, right? And so what he's doing is he's pointing to human responsibility. And so Jesus and Paul both, again, we talked about Romans 9 a little, I'm sorry, I'm all over the place. We talked about Romans 9 a little while ago. Well, look at Romans 10. Romans 9 looks at, is an examination of, it's talking about God's sovereignty. Romans 10 is looking at human responsibility. And so you constantly have that throughout the Bible. You have this going back and forth. It's not our prerogative to choose one or the other. Okay? Go ahead. What's that? There, there, God, obviously. Uh, well, when I say who wins in the tension, that's actually the first bad question you've ever asked. <laughs> no, because there is no way. That, the, the tension is a perceived tension by us, right? Because when we look at it, when we look at these things, we think of them as being in contradiction with one another. In God's economy, in, in God's realm, in God's mind, those things are not in tension. Um, I, I hate to... Are we cool with the analogy so far? Because I'm going to throw another one, right? Well, actually, I'll keep that one. Maybe Eric can clarify something. Go ahead. I get that we choose, yeah, right? Yeah, God yeah. calls, we right. respond, we choose. Right. But right. the free mean because you cannot but respond to what God has given. It's like, sort of like Jesus you know, called Lazarus from the tomb, right? Lazarus right. didn't have any right. ability but, but to respond to that. Right, right. I think he's good at right. not good at that. It's what is our freedom in that? God gives you know, God's clean God's regenerated us and then right. we're choosing him, but right. can't say no. It, it, well it's the whole idea, um well God will get all, all that, that come to him. And and uh, I'm sorry, God will get all that come to him. That's kind of a repetitive thing. God will get all that he has elected, and only those that, that he has elected. Um, we, we will all agree on that. Um, what, uh, what are, um, in what sense are, are we free? We, we make choices kind of, kind of on, a, on a day-to-day basis, right? Talking about, talking about that as a means? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you bailed me out there. Yeah, it's a... Um, it's uh, God uses means in order to ac- accomplish his will. Um, go ahead. So I think what I think some people might be having trouble with, and I think everybody should. Yeah. And it also says that we're slaves to sin, and that sin yes. we're not free. So right. We are innately sinful, and therefore, mm-hmm. like what right. he was saying, everyone is depraved. Right. And everyone is condemned, mm-hmm. but only God chooses those. And once God has generated those he chose, mm-hmm then those people have that freedom of choosing to keep sinning or not because he's given us that right. ability at that point. Right. But before that, we're slaves to sin. We're not free. Right, right. We can't choose God. Yeah, and that's very, very fair, and that's very, very biblical language. Um, so free to choose. Um, I guess the idea there is, is that, you know, let me, let me think through that a little bit better way to, to explain it. Uh, probably in the middle of the next paragraph, I'll be able to get to something. But no, that's a good point, because that's, really, that's very biblical language, that being slaves to sin. Anybody else? No? No? Okay. Go ahead. All right, all right. Uh-huh. Everyone's fighting generation. Yeah. Generation is not a work. No, I agree. So I agree. fighting to put that in God, like God's right. work. 
Right. If you're doing that, that freedom will never exist. As people putting out the door, are you really free if you can't do it? Right. Well, see, and that's the question. And like, there's no law against right, you. Right. Not. Well, I can make, I can freely make that decision, but I can't, I can't do it. Well, you can't. Right. Really. Right. Right. So. Okay, make it. Make it. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> if you can't do it, you're not free. Right. Okay. Well, and and that uh, we're kind of getting into semantics, which I probably lured you into semantics, but it, it's like wanted to have the conversation, right? It was fun while it lasted. All right. <laughs> All right. Cool. Yeah, and we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to this. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. I'm sure there's somebody on YouTube with his head spinning around right now, too. All right. <laughs> Article 4, the inadequacy of the, the light. Well, and before we move on, I, I want to I be clear. I'm not talking about what's called synergism here. I'm not talking about a cooperation of human, humans and God in... Um, in our salvation. It is God's work. Okay? I want to be clear on that. It is God's work. And as a matter of fact, when we get to like Article 16 or 17, we're going to um, make that explicit. Um, but I don't, actually, there's no way we're going to get there because we have 15 minutes. We're only on three. Um, so the idea here is, is that I just, I, that, that tension is important. Okay? Um, perceived tension, rather. Article 4, the inadequacy of the light of nature. So here, revealed, clearly perceived, perceived, and suppressed. Where does that language come from? Romans, Romans 1, verses 18 through 22. And essentially what it says is that um, God is, is revealed in the things that are created, okay? And his eternal power and his divine nature is clearly, uh, clearly, uh, clearly revealed in the things that are, are created. And we, we perceive that. We perceive that about the creator, we know that there's a creator. Um, it's not the sort of thing that we even have to think about. We just, we just know it, okay, intuitively. Um, the way I compare it is to um, uh, somebody that's in a, um, uh, finds himself in a, in a, in a deep pool, um, doesn't have to think about whether or not they need to swim. They just, they're just going to swim, right? It's an automatic sort of thing. It's a similar thing. When you find yourself in the created world, you know that you're created, it's a sense. It's a just a, it's an innate sense that we have, um, but we suppress that knowledge that we have of the Creator. We suppress it in unrighteousness, and the language there is like pressing down against a, a against a spring, and that's a part of that's the biggest part of the problem that we have is we're in constant rebellion against God. Okay, that we want to be our own gods. It's a sin sin of the garden, and so um, uh, so we're suppressing that in unrighteousness. Uh, so what can we learn from observing nature? We can learn, again, God's eternal power, his divine attributes, that sort of thing. And what can't we learn from observing nature? Well, we don't know who Jesus is by, by looking at nature. Um, what I'll say is um, the result of what we observe in nature is enough to convict us. It is not enough to save us. Okay? Similar sort of thing, I'm not going to read this, but it's a similar sort of thing with the law. Um, and this is, goes from Romans 1 to Romans 2. In Romans 2, we talk, uh, Paul is talking about the, the law and how the Jews were given the law, but the law was not enough to save. Okay? Um, let's see. Um, yeah, so it convicts us of sin. 
The law convicts us of sin, but it cannot, cannot save us. Article 6, the saving power of the gospel. Um, what therefore neither the light of nature nor the law can do, God accomplishes by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word. This is the gospel through which it has pleased God to save believers in both the Old and the New Testaments. Um, how were Old Testament saints saved? By faith. By right, uh, the righteous shall live by, by faith. They were um, given... Um, uh, they weren't given the entire uh, revelation of Jesus Christ like we have, but they were, um, you know, like Abraham. Abraham wasn't given a whole lot to go on, but when God spoke to him, he trusted God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Yes, sir. Right. I, I, what I think is, I, so um, what he asks is, um, uh, did they have an understanding that they couldn't save themselves and so they were trusting God for, for salvation? I think it's the idea that whatever God revealed to them, they, they, they trusted. And, and again, they were in the same condition that we are in that they needed the Holy Spirit to believe as well, right? And so the Holy Spirit would open their heart and then they could... Um, they, they, would, they would trust um, what God had told them. And so it wasn't the full revelation of the Messiah. Um, it wasn't everything that we have now, but it was, um, you know, it was a, a enough light where they understood who he was, and then later he would fully reveal um, his son. Good? Cool. Um, Article 10, conversion as the work of God. The fact that others who are called through the ministry of the gospel do come and are brought to conversion must not be credited to human effort, as though one distinguishes oneself by free choice from others who are furnished with equal or sufficient grace for faith and conversion, as the proud heresy of the, the Plagius maintains. No, it must be credited to God, just as from eternity God chose, uh, chose his own in Christ, so within time God effectively calls them grants them faith and repentance, and having rescued them from the dominion of darkness, brings them into the kingdom of his Son, in order that they may declare the wonderful deeds of the one who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light, and may boast not in themselves but in the Lord, as apostolic words frequently testify in, in Scripture. It is an entirely a work of God. Is there anything to add here? I don't think so. Um, these are getting kind of long. I just I, I tried to, to reduce them a little bit for time's sake. It didn't, didn't work out too well. Moreover, when God carries out this good pleasure in the elect or works true conversion in them, God not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly and enlightens their minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit so that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but by the effective operation of the same regenerating Spirit, God also penetrates into the in, uh, inmost being, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. God infuses new qualities into the will, making the, de the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling one willing, and the stubborn one compliant. God activates and strengthens the will so that, like a good tree, it may be enabled to produce the fruits of good deeds. 
So this is where um, this idea of opening the closed heart, softening the hard heart, circumcising the heart that is uncircumcised, God infuses new qualities into the, the will. Norman Geisler, again an Arminian, um, would, would deny this, saying that God is a gentleman. He does not force himself upon someone. How do you respond to that? Obviously not true, yes. Right, there's nothing ungentlemanly about saving someone. And, and that's where I, I kind of go. Uh, actually, uh, you're both right. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Well, hey, that's a great point. Yeah, the Saul of Tarsus was literally, yeah, absolutely. Well, welcome to Trinity, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, so the idea is, let's say that there's a child that's getting to run in, into the middle of a, a freeway, okay? Um, do, you, do you chase after them and grab them and keep them from running into the freeway uh, to keep them from being killed? Obviously you do. Did you force yourself upon them? Sure, obviously you did. Is that a bad thing? No, because that child um, isn't capable of making the decisions necessary in order to not go into that, that busy traffic you know, highway and get smashed by an 18-wheeler or something, right? In a similar way, we're that child, and we are already in the middle of the freeway, and what he does is pulls us out of it, okay? Um, article 12. Yes. Yeah, go for it. We love cans of worms around here. <laughs> With a side of, you know, roast beef, I don't know. From the Armenian perspective, then, uh -huh. uh, if this is how he treats all people post-fall, right. uh, that he forces himself, and that's a good thing. Right. Why didn't he at the fall? Why didn't he stop the fall itself uh -huh. from happening? Why didn't he force himself upon Adam and Eve? Why did he let them exercise their free will, but right. not all the rest of humanity? All right, so why did, uh, yeah, th thank you for that, Stephen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so why did, God, uh, why did God allow the fall? Why didn't he force himself upon Adam and Eve and just kind of cut off this whole thing? Um, I do have an answer for you, but I want to see if anybody else does. Yes, ma'am. There you go. He gets glory. Go ahead. <laughs> yes. We all like a good catch, too, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> a, a good redemption story. Go ahead. Okay, I, I, absolutely. And I think the reason we like those redemption stories is because it cuts to the very nature of reality and, and who God is, right? Because, to your point, he gets glory I hate to call it maximum glory, but he gets maximum glory by, by bringing sinners to, um, to redemption. Yes, sir? Okay. Right. So then, then, then Dan even goes back further in, in why did he create, right? And um, he's saying he puts his, uh, put his attributes on on, on display, okay? Now, we got to be careful there because 
It's not a situation where God was lacking something that he needed creation. But Dan's, uh, Dan's point is correct in that um, he, he did not... Um, but some folks say that he created us um, because he loved us. Well, we didn't exist yet, so how, how could he love us, right? Um, but he once he did, um, in time, basically create us, then he... Um, he, he does love us, and, it, and again, it maximizes his, his glory. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think I, I messed up my... Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to read this whole thing. Um, let's see. Regeneration is an entirely supernatural work, one that is at the same time most powerful and most pleasing, a marvelous, hidden, and inexpressible work, which is not less than or inferior in power to that of creation or raising of the dead, as scripture, inspired by the author of this work, teaches. And then, um, yeah, sorry, I put the box in front of it. Um, so how is regeneration related to creation? Now, I'll say in both instances, I'll just answer it, in both instances, it's entirely a work of God. Okay? If you look at the Old Testament, there's a word called bara. A B, in English, we would say B-A-R-A, bara. And it's actually in, in Genesis 1, Genesis 1, verse 1. And um, it's, it's create. It, it does, you know, the word doesn't necessarily mean um, create out of nothing. But where it's used in the Old Testament, like a dozen or so times, God is always the, um, the, the subject of that, of that word. He's always the one that's doing the barah, okay? And so barah is this special creation thing. And it's uh, both in truly creating something and then also in regenerating us, which regeneration you can think of as regenesis. It's, those two th things are kind of tied together. It's a work of God. Only God can really create, and only God can um, regenerate the, the human heart and then give us a, make us a, uh, a new creation. Now, how is it related to the raising of the dead? Again, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a work of God. Um, I had one more point there, and I can't remember what it was. So I get for getting in a hurry. All right, Article 13. Um, in this life, believers cannot fully understand the way this work occurs. Meanwhile, they rest content with knowing and experiencing that by this grace of God, they do believe with the heart and love of their Savior. In Article 14, um, in this way, therefore, faith is a gift of God, not in the sense that it is offered by God for people to choose, but that it is in um, actual fact bestowed on them, breathed and infused into them. Nor is it a gift in the sense that God bestows only the potential to believe, but then awaits assent, the act of believing. By human choice, um, by human choice rather, it is a gift in the sense that God, who works both willing and acting, and indeed works all things and all people and produces in them both the will to believe and the, the belief itself. I think 16, ah, 16. Um, however, just as by the fall of humans did not cease to be human, endowed with intellect and will, and just as sin, which has spread through the whole human race, did not abolish the nature of the human race, but distorted and spiritually killed it, so also this divine grace of regeneration does not act in people as if they were blocks and stones, nor does it abolish the will and its properties 
or coerce a reluctant will by force, but spiritually revives, heals, reforms, and in a manner at once pleasing and powerful, bends it back. As a result, a ready and sincere obedience of the Spirit now begins to prevail where before the rebellion and resistance of the flesh were completely dominant. In this, the true and spiritual restoration and freedom of our will consists. Thus, if the marvelous maker of every good thing were not dealing with us, we would have no hope of getting up from our fall by our own free choice, by which we plunge ourselves into ruin when we stand, um, we're standing upright. And then finally, uh, Article 17, just as the almighty work by which God brings forth and sustains our natural life does not rule out, but requires the use of means by which God, according to his infinite wisdom and goodness, has wished to exercise that divine power, so also the aforementioned supernatural work by which God regenerates us in no way rules out or cancels the use of the gospel, which God in great wisdom has appointed to be the seed of regeneration and the food of the soul. For grace is bestowed through the admonitions, and the more readily we perform our duty, the more lustrous the benefit of God working in us usually is, and the better that work advances. To God alone, both for the means and for their saving fruit and effectiveness, all glory is owed forever. Amen. That was a mouthful. Sorry I had to race through that, but um, we actually made it. So are there any, any questions or thoughts? I know we've still got kind of that outstanding question about exactly what do I mean by um, kind of the freedom. Yeah, let me noodle on that for a bit. So um, is that it? What's that? Well, go ahead. Yep. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. So what? Um, yeah. So I think the way I think it was Augustine who said before the fall, um, they had the ability to not sin. Um, where uh, after the fall, if you're not saved, you you don't have the ability don't have the ability to not sin. You've inherited a sin nature. Yes. After the fall. And then, and then once but you, you sin because you are a sinner. Right. You don't become a sinner by sinning. Right. You're you're a sinner by nature, so you sin. Right. And then, and then once you're saved, then you do have the ability to to not sin. And then once you're glorified, you don't have the ability to sin. Yeah, that's where I was getting it. Mixed up. Yes, ma'am. Uh huh. Yeah, 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 that's fair, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, and that was kind of a grenade too, so just seeing what happens, yes ma'am, or is sir, sorry, yes sir. Right. Right. And the idea, yeah, right, exactly. So even our good works are, are filthy rags. And 
And the idea there is, is most of the time when we, when we have quote unquote good works, a lot of times they're, you know, they're like selfish motives, that sort of thing. And even if they're not, let's assume for a second that there's times when they're not, you know, we have rebelled against God and we're such an affront to him in our fallen state that, um, that it, you know, if we expect some little thing that we do that's actually a good thing to make up for everything else that we've done, it, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, right? We've, we've sinned so grossly um, and so massively that if we think that, you know, helping a little old lady across the street or, you know, working at a, a, a homeless shelter or something like that, is going to make up for all of that, then it's we're, we're sadly mistaken, right? Does that make sense? So, cool. Anybody else? Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Thank you, Evie. And you were dead in trespasses, right. in the trespasses and sin, and went to mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I don't know how much freedom that people have. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, so let me expand on that a little bit. Um, you're, you're dead in your, your trespasses, and, and so what I do want to be clear on in, in, in what we're talking about is, again, Arminians, I hate to make Arminians like the bad guys, but in this case, I think they kind of are, but... Um, it's it's uh, they'll use the analogy of um, your um, drowning, and you're in in the water and you're drowning and you're flailing and you know God throws Jesus as a, like a life preserver, and you just have to reach out and and grab him, right? But to Ify's point, you know dead people don't reach out and grab it. It's not like we're in the water, we're struggling against it and we're flailing. It's that we are we are dead, okay? Um, and so a dead person is not going to, to reach out and grab the life preserver. So if you want to go with the analogy, it's almost like Jesus is the lifeguard, or the Holy Spirit is a lifeguard that pulls us out of the water and gives us CPR or mouth-to-mouth or whatever and, um, and, and revives us, okay, brings us back to life. Um, the whole <clears throat> freedom thing, it's, it's kind of there's a context for it. Um, I think I kind of blew up the context a little bit. But everything that you guys are saying, I don't think I've heard anybody say anything that, that we would disagree with. Okay? But my, my point is, is that there is, a, um, there is the concept, again, when you look at, compare Romans 9 and Romans 10, when you look at Jesus as he's teaching through, um, as he's teaching through his, his, various, his various teachings you know, in, the, in the Gospels, we go back and forth between the Sovereignty of God and the and human responsibility. Look at Genesis 50, where you know Joseph is saying, "What you meant for good, um, oh, I'm sorry. What you meant for evil, God meant for good." Look in Acts 2, where it says that um, God had ordained this, but but you're responsible for for hanging him. Okay, you you did that of your own will, but again, it's the sort of thing that um, God had had ordained. Okay, and so. There, there is a perceived tension there, and we need to honor that 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 tension um, because that's what the Bible teaches. All right, Stuart, you mind? Oh, do you have a question? Oh, 
Okay. Ah, okay, okay. You touched on a little bit with, like, Old Testament. Right. How are they saved? Yeah. Absolutely. Thank thank you for asking that, by the way. Um, Hope you guys can bear with me for just a few more minutes. If not, it's his fault, okay. Uh, (laughs) Okay, so he asks about the, 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 the argument of the person in the Amazon that's never heard of Jesus, Okay. Now, that's actually an argument that's very near and dear to my heart, because as you guys know, um, I did not attend church prior to, I don't know, like 34, 30, the age of 34 or 35, okay? Um, and once I started hearing the gospel, um, I, belie- I, I believed it was kind of getting there, but what I struggled with is exactly what he said, the aborigine in the middle of Australia that's never heard the name of Jesus, you know, that's a, a good guy, you know, how, how can he be condemned when he's never even heard the name of Jesus, okay? And so that, that tripped me up for a long time. And, and what I did was I set that, that question aside because by that point I, I, had, I had been um, studying the Bible for a, a little while. And what I did was I studied the attributes of God. And I came to understand who he is in terms of, you know, again, his sovereignty and his goodness and his love and his wrath and all those different things. And when I came back to that question um, in the context of who God is, all of a sudden I had no problem with it. Because the the idea there is, is that the Aborigine in the middle of Australia has light in, in nature. They see, they, they see that they're a created being and that, they're, um, that they have an understanding that they're fallen, um, but they don't respond to it any more than we do. And so, you know, the, the first answer is, is that there is no, you know, good Aborigine in the middle of Australia because there is no such thing as a, as a, a good person without, without Christ, okay? The, the second thing is that, um, so there's the idea of not responding to the light that he has, and then the, se- the second thing is the response that um, we shouldn't ask why God doesn't save that person. Really, we need to be asking why he saves anybody at all, and that includes us. Right, and so it's really kind of a, you know, turning it around a, a little bit. I think that the Arminians asked the wrong question. Um, we need to be amazed that he would, in his holiness, that he would save anyone. Not that he, um, in his justice, doesn't save certain people. Does that make sense? Are we good? Okay, cool. Yes, sir. Okay, no worries. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. So he's not a good guy. No. Cool. Good. 
All right, I'm not going to ask if there's any more. Uh, Stuart, do you mind? No. Father, thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we were, were de depraved in our nature, um, apart from you and rebellious, and you graciously redeemed us through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, you need to be the sole object of our worship, for you have accomplished what we couldn't do on our own. And we thank you for that redemption that we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sir.